1: You're listening to the Archaeology Podcast Network. You're listening to Tea Break Time Travel, where every month we look at a different archaeological object and take you on a journey into their past. Hello and welcome to episode 21 of Tea Break Time Travel. I am your host, Matilda Siebrecht. Today I'm savouring a chai latte. I went a bit lazy on this one and I'm just using the chai latte powder with some milk, but you know what? It tastes delicious, so I don't care. And joining me on my tea break today is professional archaeologist Aaron Dieter-Wolf. And are you also drinking tea coffee anything I, any hot beverage
2: i am thank you thank you so much for having me i am going ginger turmeric today i think it's supposed to help me with stress oh. and i don't know if it's doing that or not but you know every little bit helps right yeah yeah exactly was, uh,
1: ginger is turmeric are also supposed to be really good for warding off colds and stuff right which oh, this time of year is probably probably a good thing as, as well to again to it can't that. it can't hurt yeah, exactly. And are you generally, so that's sort of more of a, well, I don't even know if that would count as herbal because herbal to me is always like chamomile, but you're, you're not necessarily a black tea drinker. You go with like more the fruity, the
2: fruity concoctions. I am all over the place. I don't really have a favorite, honestly. Uh, most days I start out with coffee and then it sort of depends on how the day is going if I make it off of coffee on and onto other things. <laughs>
1: fair enough. Fair enough. And your coffee is standard black coffee? Is it a fancy coffee? Uh, Chai, espresso, uh, la- latte, macchiato, caramel. I am, I am a
2: latte guy, yep. Okay. I, I enjoy the, the espresso and the milk, yep. <laughs> yeah,
1: also always good. Well, thank you very much uh, for joining me today. I appreciate it, especially if it sounds like it's a stressful time at the moment. Hopefully, this takes away some of the stress rather than adding <laughs> adding more to it. So, of course, you are a professional archaeologist, you work in the sort of archaeological cultural heritage sector. And of course, you do sort of independent research, which we'll get into in a second. But in terms of the kind of archaeology, what actually got you into archaeology in the first place? I always ask my guests this and every single time it's been a
2: completely different answer. So
1: I'm very curious how, how the inspiration hit you.
2: Sure. Yeah. So in high school, I guess it was late high school, my family took a trip to the Yucatan Peninsula in Mexico and oh, cool. I was introduced to the Maya ruins at that time. Oh. And that was that would have been in 1991 or 1992. And so it was not quite sort of the tourist Mecca that it's become mm. now, sort of a much earlier, more uh sort of rustic, I guess, yeah. experience. And and that really got me thinking about archaeology. And then freshman year of college, I took a Maya art and archaeology course and decided <laughs> that this was a thing I wanted to do.
1: Huh. Huh. But uh, is there how come you then didn't sort of continue Did or did you decide not to continue in Mayan archaeology or did you just get drawn into other topics?
2: (laughs) So a little bit of both. So the school that I attended, my college, did not actually have an archaeology degree. They only had classical archaeology as a Uh, minor. And so I I actually came out of uh, undergrad with an art history degree of all things. uh And then went to graduate school to study Maya archaeology and worked for a couple of field seasons in Belize and Guatemala, excavating on Maya sites and eventually realized that there were too few jobs for my archaeologists and too many people who already had PhDs in the, in the profession.
1: Right. And
2: so I sort of changed focus and started working in cultural resource management here in the American Southeast.
1: Okay, but the work that you were doing in South America was sort of research focused excavation things rather than the cultural heritage pool
2: yeah, it, it was it was academic archaeology. So at that stage, because I was still a graduate student, I was working on other people's projects. And mm-hmm. so they were projects at specific sites, redeveloped or uh, um, understanding the the initial chronologies of some of these sites. Um, you're doing mm-hmm. sort of first, first on the ground excavations, trying to reconstruct when exactly these sites spanned and you know which communities live there and how they relate to the, to the other communities in the periphery.
1: Okay. And in terms of, so my personal experience in terms of excavation is indeed that kind of excavation. So research excavations, and then also working for, say, a commercial company who, you know, they're building a car park, they find a wall, we're sent in (laughs) to dig up the wall, and then they build the car park. (laughs) So, But in terms of cultural resource management, especially in the US, seems to be a really big thing. What would you say are the kind of major differences in that sphere, of, in that line of work compared to kind of excavation
2: archaeology? Well, I think it's it's very similar to what you described with the car park, okay. right? So uh, cultural resource management is sort of, it's sort of the shorthand for archaeology as business and compliance. Mm-hmm. And so I did that work for about seven seven or eight years after graduate school. Mm-hmm. And that's, you know, that's going out ahead of projects that are required to do federal or state-level compliance or environmental permitting. So if a project receives state-level permitting or, or federal permitting or receives federal money, one of their requirements may be to do environmental studies. And, you know, that looks at endangered species, it looks at watersheds, it looks at pollution, it looks at archaeology. And so we were out doing, doing exactly that work, you know, walking yeah. walking the, the path of a future transmission line and digging a hole every 30 meters. Yeah, That's
1: basically what we're doing now in the company. <laughs> I mean, as yep. well, it's like, oh joy, <laughs> oh another hole, oh great. Yeah. <laughs>
3: <Here it is. laughs>
2: yeah, and so I did that for about seven years or seven to ten years or so, and then was in sort of the right place at the right time when a job opened here at the Tennessee Division of Archaeology, which is the state of Tennessee's archaeology wing. And so we're part of this big environment and conservation umbrella. And that's everything, again, from, you know, stream water and species to state parks and recreation. And archaeology is a very small cog in that wheel.
1: Okay. And so do you still dig or is it mainly the kind of more administrative side? Well, administrative makes it sound small, but you know what I mean? Like the uh, the policy and that kind of side.
2: Yeah, there's not there's not a lot of room for full scale excavation anymore. There Mm -hmm. are, what, 36,000 thousand or so recorded sites in Tennessee and at this point I'm the only prehistoric archaeologist with our group okay. so there's 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 more that could be dug than I could possibly dig and okay. so our focus is is much more in a, a conservation and preservation side of things
1: okay do you miss the digging
2: Sometimes, you know, sometimes I do. Sometimes my back is just as happy that I'm not out there doing it anymore. <laughs> I went
1: out to an excavation site for the first time in ages the other week because I'm mainly doing the documentation and kind of communication side of things at the company. But I went and did some actual digging because I was like, yeah, I have a few hours. Why not? And oh my gosh, my knees and my, my legs and my back the day after. I was like, yep, no, this is why I prefer lab work. <laughs> yep,
2: yes. Yeah. bad. The permanent farmers, Pan, yes,
1: all of it. <laughs> as well, like the tinnitus from all the wind just whipping through yeah. your ears all the time. Yeah, yeah, basically. So, and also, so alongside your job as state archaeologist or archaeolo- an archaeologist within the state. Uh, there you go. Yep. <laughs> yep. <laughs> the state archaeologist sounds so much, you know.
2: <laughs> uh, he's, he's my boss.
1: Other. Yeah. Ah, okay. No, <laughs> you know. That's fine. He might not listen to this podcast. <laughs> <laughs> he, might, he might never know. <laughs> you also have become the kind of world's authority, one might say, on the archaeology of tattooing, which is something that we're going to talk about today. Usually I try and give a bit more of a spoiler, but seeing as we chatted with Daniel last week and I said we were going to talk to you about tattooing last month, I mean, and we said we were going to talk with you about tattooing this month, I feel it's not really a spoiler. So how did that come about from, from a background in kind of excavation and, and Mayan? How did tattooing become a thing?
2: Yeah, well I mean for starters you're being really generous and I appreciate that. You know, I don't I don't <laughs> consider myself the expert on anything. I, I know a few things, but you know that's the result of of having been reading for a decade, and you know having formed some very close friendships with with practitioners, with people like Danny, and you know indigenous practitioners, and full time tattooists, and you know it takes a village to do good research, and you know <laughs> I don't think any of us sort of stand on our own in that regard. But all of that aside, yeah, I got I got interested in the topic back while I was still doing my archaeology. My first tattoos that I got were in graduate school were of, of Maya glyphs, oh. and you know I think. a lot lot of archaeologists get tattoos of the things they're studying, particularly in graduate school. (laughs) It's like a good um,
1: form of CV. Like, it's an easier way. You just turn up to your interview and say, look, this is what I'm (laughs) (laughs) right.
2: (laughs) Yes. Put it on the front page of your CV. Yeah. (laughs) But, you know, everybody, there's kind of a general awareness that the Maya, you know, engaged in a lot of different kinds of body modification. And, you know, while you're working there, you're, you're finding tools, you're finding obsidian blades that, you know, or stingray spines, things that you know are associated with body modification. And, you know, I thought about it a little bit at the time, just because of myself having those tattoos and, you know, other graduate students and talking about it. But then when I switched focus to working here in the American Southeast, that sort of followed me in the back of my head for a number of years. And I started getting interested in this in this question of if tattooing was happening in the past, why aren't we finding it archaeologically? Hmm. And particularly when you look at the first accounts of European and Native American interactions all along the eastern seaboard of the United States, starting in, let's say the fifteenth, uh, sixteenth centuries, an incredible number of those accounts describe that the Native Americans who were encountering the Europeans, that the Native Americans were heavily tattooed mm-hmm. and the language isn't quite there yet. So, you know, the word tattoo wasn't part of the European lexicon yet. But you have these accounts where, you know, Spanish authors will describe that Native men in Florida had these designs on their skin, which were pricked in with thorns and so could never be erased. Oh, and well, you're like, OK, well, you know that. that OK, they're talking about tattooing, there, right? Yeah.
1: Fair. So, yes, it was pretty it was pretty clear indeed that they were referring to tattoos of, of these cultures that they were experiencing and that they were meeting.
2: <laughs> yeah, exactly. And and there's art from the region that suggests tattooing was practiced at least several hundred years prior to the arrival of Europeans. Mm. And so, you know, as an archaeologist working in this area, this got me interested in the question of, well, if people were doing this if people were practicing tattooing then why weren't we finding the artifacts of that mm-hmm. practice where was the material culture mm-hmm. and at that time there had been you know maybe a dozen identifications over two centuries of possible tattooing implements from north america mm-hmm. and mm-hmm you know this this really bugged me right i mean the thing about archaeology is we you know we think we're interpreting the past we think we're understanding people's behaviors and what they did and how they you know saw themselves in their in their societies and in their environments and and here's this entire behavior this entire aspect of human culture that we were apparently just blind to <laughs> and You know, the great thing about doing independent research is that you're not hemmed in then by by (laughs) geographic constraints or, you know, institutional constraints. And so I, you know, in working on this question for North America, it, it. sort of became clear that this is an issue all over the world, yeah. that, you know, we know the ancient Egyptians tattooed, we don't know what tools they used to do it, mm-hmm. you know, and so then how do we solve that problem? And that's sort of been the this through line that runs through my research then is this idea of, you know, A, why have we overlooked this? And B, how can we be better about this?
1: Oh, exciting. Well, we're going to talk more about that in a second. But first of all, of course, one more question I have to ask you, as this is tea break time travel, if you could travel
2: back in time, where would you go and why? You know, I don't think I have a good answer for that. There is. There's just. There's so much of the past that would be amazing to see and so many different places and so many different cultures, you know, for my own research, being able to go back into the mid Holocene in the southeastern United States would be amazing, you know, for any reason you could possibly think of going back to see the, the ancient Maya would be incredible. Yeah. You know, there's, uh, there's all of these cultures that, you know, we as archaeologists, I think really appreciate, but don't really understand in that first person sort of way. Yeah. And so getting to see any of them would be a privilege.
1: I mean, it could, there's there's a slight stereotype, right, for, for Americans and Australians, tourists coming to Europe that you do a, a tour of the whole of Europe, you know, and, and spend one day in each place. So that could be a similar <laughs> yes. thing for going back in time, right? Like you do a <laughs> tour of the whole time. There period. you go.
2: <laughs> <laughs> the worst time travel tourist ever. <laughs> <Just>. <laughs>
1: get all of the okay, highlights back on the bus
3: yeah, yeah.
1: <laughs> that sounds I mean why not that sounds if we start if we ever <laughs> <Right>. do <doing> time <mental laughs> <home> travel <laughs> <laughs> on to Giza yeah exactly <laughs> Cool, well, thank you so much for joining me in my tea break today. So before we talk a little bit more about tattooing and the research surrounding it, we're gonna journey back to the Pazaruk Valley. I apologize in advance for any butchering that I do of that pronunciation. Aaron can correct me in a moment. In the Altai Mountains of Siberia, somewhere in the middle of the fourth century BC. It's dusk, there's the clicking and purring sounds of insects and other wildlife fills the air above the wide plains. Before us stands a huge pile of freshly dug soil heaped around the smooth stone. Of a tomb. In front of the mound, a crowd of people are gathered, some holding flaming torches, others bearing wreaths of woven hair and grass. They watch in silence as a procession approaches several figures holding aloft a stretcher on which lies a muscled, middle aged man. Although he's wrapped in expensive cloths, one arm lies uncovered along his side, revealing several elaborate swirling tattoos in the form of different animals. They seem to dance in the flickering firelight, but then the procession moves into the tomb and the animals fall still. I may have been slightly inspired when I was looking at the pictures. So how do you pronounce that correctly, Aaron? Do you know? I I do not know. Okay, good. That makes me feel better. (laughs)
2: You have to ask Gino.
1: Okay, perfect. I'll, I'll ask Dino, and he can he can comment on this uh, podcast when it's released and go, ugh, you guys, you don't know anything. <laughs> so yeah, so these are, of course, the famous mummies, puzzle rock mummies that were found in, in the caves in Siberia. And so we're going to talk today about tattoos. And we already spoke a bit with Danny last week about tattooing materials and the the kind of tools and the methods and the techniques that are used. But we have Aaron here today to tell us a little bit more about the tattoos themselves and the research that goes into them. So we'll get a bit more into the details into the next section. But first, of course, we always have to look at the most asked questions on the internet, which, as I said to Danny, there was surprisingly little about tattooing, actually, when you did a sort of Google autofill search thing. There's there's very little about, especially ancient tattooing, which just, I think, proves your point that you said that we're not interested enough in past tattooing, apparently. So, of course, the the main questions were all about origins. So, for example, when did the tattooing start and who did the first tattoos? Can you enlighten us at all about this?
2: Boy, wouldn't it be great to be able to answer those? Right. <laughs> um, yeah, we'll start with the small and, and questions. <laughs> let's <laughs> we'll start with the start with the really small ones right <laughs> we we don't know there there they're just they're just are not enough data points yet mm. you know we know tattooing as a practice goes back at least 5000 years that's the earliest direct evidence so far if it goes back 5000 years it goes back further we just yeah. don't have the archaeological or historical evidence to talk about it in those terms yet <laughs> and as for who is doing it again i don't i don't think we know enough to really say you know we we can take we can take historical cultures and you know based on what we know about them project into the past and that's you know that's one way of looking at, at how people behave in the past but it also comes with some dangers right you're mm-hmm. projecting these things over time and space and the further you go from from the cultures you're using the more the more error you're incurring mm-hmm. but but doing that i think we would intuit that the people doing the tattooing were not just every, every dude around the campfire, right? That These were practices that were probably done by healers, by shaman, by ritual practitioners because of all of the things that were tied in with them, because of the sacred symbols, because of the letting of blood, that it was not just a casual thing that was done.
1: Okay. So but so it's assumed that it was sort of part of some kind of uh, I hate to use the word ritual but you know what I mean <laughs> in terms of ritual look,
2: look we're archaeologists <laughs> if we don't understand it we, we call it ritual, ritual. <laughs> you, you know how this works yes, I do
1: I do I just like to pretend i don't do it but who knows i, don't I really do it but so it's it, it would likely have occurred i suppose around the same time that maybe ornamentation or, or kind of that we see evidence for for other forms of decoration starting, would you say? Or do you think that it could have even been earlier
2: than that? Right. I mean, boy, that would be cool, right? I mean, you know, body decoration is one of the, what do they call it, the behavioral bees, right? It's one of those traits that makes, allegedly makes biologically modern humans different from our cousins. You know, it's what makes us supposedly stand out from, you know, Homo erectus and all these other, all these other individuals who are roaming around the landscape um, before us oh, oh, and you know as soon as humans become human we start decorating stuff we start making <laughs> beads we start you know processing ochres for pigments like it's, it's really deeply embedded in who we are as a as a creature and you know sure right I mean what, what's, it, what's it take to, to, to get that first accidental tattoo? You know, when you when you are around a campfire and get, you know, poked by the piece of wood with charcoal on it, that mark never goes away.
1: This was actually a, a really interesting point that Daniel raised last month in that he one theory that he had from his mentor was that it was during the butchering process because you're covered in all this sort of fat. And then that gets mixed up with the soot of the fire as you're processing. And then you have these sharp obsidian blades. So you just automatically get little cuts and nicks everywhere and then somehow that turns into tattoos, which
2: I really like that theory. (laughs) Right. Well, I mean, you know, I think it's, I mean, obviously... People are going to be aware of the, of the the possibility of human skin holding pigment because of accidents like that, mm-hmm. and then you know at the point at which people then have complex symbolism. If you're pa- if you're painting something on cave walls and it's you know semi permanent, or if you're painting it on bodies and it's semi permanent, how much better and more important is it to put those same designs on skin in a way that they don't go away, in a way that's mm. that's there until the person dies. Yeah. And so I think it's a it's a quick step to the side to reach this idea of scarification or tattooing.
1: Ah, ah. But indeed, but the short, short answer is we don't we don't know <laughs> when, don't when know.
2: tattooing started or who did the first one.
1: Good, good. Well, <laughs> now that we've covered that. Uh, <laughs> let's uh, have a very quick break and uh, we will be back soon.
3: Waiting on a tax return. Hopefully it ends up in your hands. Welcome back, everyone. So
1: we know, well, we don't actually know any more about tattoos. <laughs> we just know how much we don't know about <laughs> tattoos. <laughs> but So maybe we can discuss even more that we don't know about, about tattoos. Well, no, let's start with something that we do know. So for example, how many examples, and I mean, this might be a bit too specific a question, so feel free to interpret it as you wish, but how many examples of actual ancient tattoos do we have like that? We can surely say that is a tattoo.
2: <laughs> More than you would think. So, so one of my side projects is the tattooed human mummy database, and so this is a, this is a thing where it's an open source database where I just keep track of all of the published examples of tattoos from the ancient past. So these are things that are preserved on human skin, deliberately or accidentally mummified human skin. And I think at last count, we're up to about 50 or so archaeological sites on five or so continents. Wow, and and that's sites even, not even necessarily individuals. Exactly. Yeah, that's actual identifiable sites. And then beyond that, there are, you know, there's sort of this indefinite body of... Preserve tattoos that come from things like historical sources where, you know, maybe a, a British, a British writer traveling in Sudan, just, you know, in the 1800s, writes this offhand thing about, and in the cemetery near such and such, all of the mummies had tattoos. Right. And you're like, okay, well, you know, like you great, know so what, we don't know what site that is. And we don't know what all of the mummies, you is know, this being one, does it be 500? So, you know, there's that, there's that kind of error in there, mm. but You know, that that number is increasing constantly. And, you know, there have been more identifications of preserved tattoos in the past decade than there were in the century before that.
1: Mm-hmm. And in terms of the kind of technology that's used to identify tattoos, because I believe Danny mentioned something about using kind of infrared and that could then show you tattoos that hadn't been seen before. Like what, what, what is the sort of process of, of tattoos being hidden that we can now get to? Or are there some processes that we haven't worked out how to kind of interpret yet.
2: Yeah, you know, infrared and multispectral imaging are the are the big ones, are the big tools in that kit. And those work, you know, even even if you can't see the tattoo visibly, right? The human epidermis, depending on the preservation conditions, skin might darken, it might twist, it might lay over mm. itself, you know, parts of it may degrade more than others, it may be covered with body paint or with clothing or other things. Mm -hmm. And so there are certainly examples of preserved human remains that have not been identified as being tattooed, but that might be. Mm -hmm. And the way the multispectral imaging or the infrared imaging works, it basically relies on the fact that tattoo pigment absorbs and reflects light in these spectra, in these different spectra, differently than untattooed skin does. And so, even if the surface of the skin is, say, you know, a dark brown, a, dark, a rich yeah. mahogany brown from being exposed <laughs> to the desert for centuries, right? Yeah. Yeah. When you look at it in the in the near infrared spectrum, that light will absorb and reflect differently on the, in the tattooed skin and the non-tattooed skin, and so you can see those marks. <laughs> and yeah, even after all Dan- those years, even after all those years, I mean, there <laughs> were there were examples when Danny and I were working in that collection of Andean remains where we would point the camera at a an, an arm or a body part that had no visible sign and all of a sudden you're looking at not just like single dots, but you know, complex compositions of oh. tattoos encircling oh. the whole arm that oh, would otherwise man. never have been noticed.
1: How did you get any actual
2: work done? I would have just been squealing the whole time. There's a lot of that. It's, you know, it's like any archaeological project. It starts out with giddiness and yeah. like, you know, you know, you're, you're ready to go. You're going to do all these things. And by like day four, you're kind of on like the death march. You're like, oh, my God, we've got 200 more to go. We're never going to get through this.
1: Oh, another tattoo. Oh, yay.
2: Right. <laughs> Great. Let's document this one, I guess. <laughs> <laughs> we've run out of restrictions Recording sheets, <laughs>
1: <laughs> but I mean, amazing, amazing that that's. Uh, yeah, I, I assume this is, by the way, being written up and will be uh, published some point soon. No, hopefully, it, uh...
2: hopefully sooner than later. Actually, there's a there's a German colleague who is working on the question of Andean remains in. European Museum Collections for his dissertation.
1: Okay. And
2: so we've been we've been collaborating and publication of a lot of this may wait until after his dissertation is out so as not Good. to interrupt that process.
1: Fair enough. Fair enough. Do uh, Are we allowed to know who it is in case people want to, to look
2: at it? Sure. Yeah. Rob, Robin Gerst. G-E-R-S-T is his name. Yeah. He's in Germany and he's actually presented at the World Mummy Congress and he and I co-authored a paper at the recent European Archaeological Association. Association or European Society of Archaeology. I never can remember what the, the EAA meeting. There, right? yeah, <laughs> the European Association of Archaeologists, I think. There right. you right. go. The European oh, yeah. yeah,
1: well, I should know it. I was there the last one as well. But, but yeah, fantastic. Oh, so you've got, you know, your own tattooing apprentice now. In the-
2: <laughs> no, 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 no. Collaborator.
1: <laughs> collaborator. Oh, that's very, <laughs> yeah. But yeah. And in terms of when you were interpreting these tattoos then, because as you said, the skin's all twisted or it's dark or it's thing. how much kind of imagination is needed? I think I saw at some point recently. You posted on your social media about kind of some Alpha and Omega sign that had been identified. And you were saying, "Mm, that's a bit of a stretch of the imagination. I mean, how much how much bias is there, would you say, in the interpretation
2: of that? Or how can you avoid that, I guess? Oh, it's hard, right? (laughs) I mean, I think it's like any sort of any sort of art history or any sort of, you know, working with ancient symbolism, especially on artifacts. There's all different levels of preservation. And, you know, the best the best cases you can just look at these things and see them with the naked eye and they're incredible and you can draw them out by hand very easily. And in the worst cases, you know, skin is degraded or pieces are missing or the, you know, the marks themselves have, have interruptions in them from, from curation processes or from preservation processes. And yeah, a lot of it is, a lot of it can be sort of art rather than science, honestly.
1: Yeah. Uh, And did you find, for example, when you were looking at this sort of big collection of different mummies, that you would sort of see some symbols on one and go, oh, I'm not sure what that is. Okay, maybe it's kind of this. And then maybe you'd see the same symbols on another one. Or was it all quite varied?
2: No, absolutely. So again, it, it's, it sort of works like any form of ancient art. You know, you look at, after you look at a couple thousand of the thing, you can, you like <laughs> right, a squiggly
1: snake. A, <laughs>
2: <right>. <laughs> yeah, exactly. You had you a pretty good, pretty good ability to sort of pick out you know, based on the outlines, based on the shared sizes and, um, you know, sort of ephemeral shapes, you can more closely, I think, sort of push things into buckets. You know, yeah. th- this one's probably a fish based on these other 500 fish we've seen.
1: Right. Yeah, yeah. 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 No, interesting. And in terms of we've kind of spoken a little bit about how, like why these tattoos would have come about and how they would have come about, but they, like you say, they're sort of, their are art. Do you think that people, Tattooed just simply as a form of decoration, or would there be other kind of reasons? I suppose for for painting themselves with with these different symbols or yeah you know, pictures. I guess
2: <laughs> my bet is that it was rarely a personal form of decoration Mm -hmm. now you know of course everybody wants but once tattoos on your body it becomes part of your identity Mm -hmm. right regardless of how it was that it what the cultural processes were that got it there but -hmm. again based on what we know about historical you know pre-western tattooing and projecting into the past our our expectation is that these are things that were not necessarily selected by the individual but were given to them by value of who they were in the society, by you know honors they had earned, by who their parents were, by what their lineage was, by the individual who was doing the tattooing. You know, that, that's sort of what we expect: is that there there wasn't this there wasn't the same idea of people just picking things out and getting them. Now <laughs>
1: that's you know, pretty. I want the butterfly. <laughs> but now,
2: now, now having said that, you know, for example, I've seen so many tattoos from the Andes now that have such a wide Variety is such a huge variation, and none, no two of them are the same. Mm -hmm. And you know, we'll see the same motifs, but blocked into completely different, you know, within completely different sleeves, right? Compositions Mm. that run all the way from the from the knuckles up to the fore, up to the elbow. Uh And and so I don't quite know how to explain that. You know, a a year ago I would have said, Oh yeah, no, everybody's just getting what they're given, but then you see that much variation in a sample, and you say, well, you know, maybe. Maybe not, right? Maybe this is the exception that proves the rule.
1: Huh, huh. Oh, that's very, yeah. Which, uh, And I guess I'm trying to think of other forms of decoration. I suppose it's similar in that you have the same kind of, I'm trying to think of like, there's, I can't remember now which culture it is. In Africa, there's a, there's a culture which I remember have different beaded necklaces and the necklace said whether you were married, whether you had children, whether you, you know, like depending on how many you had and so obviously you know the more necklaces you had the more kind of higher your social status was because it showed that you had all these different kind of tasks completed I guess in in that way but still the necklaces were all different but they were Still the beaded necklaces, if that makes sense.
2: Right. Yeah, no, absolutely. Well, and with clothing or any other form of body decoration, you know, in some some cases it is socially mandated. You know, (laughs) the headdresses look the same and only certain people get them. But in other cases, there's a lot of variation and and a lot more individuality agency in those choices.
1: Yeah, or even just something. I'm thinking something even more modern, like you know, a tie. It's like yes, you have to wear a tie to work, but everyone's
2: surprised. No one said it couldn't have cats on it.
1: Exactly. (laughs) So you know, no, you have to get this type of tattoo. Well, no one said it had to be that because it's basically a tattoo. (laughs) Right. (laughs) I could alter it a little bit. And would you say then that? all cultures because like you say more more and more examples of ancient tattoos are sort of coming to light every day and we have all these historic and uh, ethnographic references which state that a lot of these cultures in the past and and present i suppose had tattoos would you say that all cultures had some form of tattooing tradition or other kind of body modification
2: boy that's a boy that's a limb to go out on isn't it <laughs> right all culture <laughs> <laughs>
1: Or, you know, um, would you say a, a large percentage likely had it, I guess? Because it's one of those things that I suppose you don't really think about, like you say, unless you're unless you are forced to think about it,
2: you know, but. Right. But- well, so what, one of one of the projects that that my buddy Ben Robitaille and I've been working on over the years is, you know, mapping out tool forms, you know, accounts of tattooing technologies on this global scale. And when you look at that map, I mean, it is really inching towards every piece of habitable land to where, to where we have these accounts from. I mean, I, I, I increasingly think that, like you said, more cultures than not had right, some yes. form of tattooing. Now, it wasn't always positive, right? I mean, empires seem to hate tattooing, huh. and, you know, that's sort of an interesting thread in the, in the histories as well, is that these large empires, whether it's, you know, the Western colonialism or Han China or the Inca, those are groups that may use tattooing but they use it for negative reasons right whereas Mm -hmm. the groups on their periphery use tattooing as marks of of inclusion of being a part of the culture Mm -hmm. and so you know there's always that tension of like you know some groups once it's on the skin of a of a person or a group it becomes a mark of belonging
3: yeah
2: but the people next door to them those same marks are a mark of of the outsider, of the other,
1: belonging but so, in a bad way. Yes, I guess. So, yeah, yeah. Yeah, yeah.
2: And so, particularly, I think then it, when you have these, you know, political structures that are trying to suppress individuality and sort of bring in, bring in these regional cultures under the umbrella of, you know, the one big culture, capital C. Mm. Uh, one of the things they do is they su- they suppress individuality, they suppress language, they suppress traditional dress, they suppress traditional religion, and and body decoration of all forms.
1: Huh, huh. Because yeah, I guess it, it shows an individuality that, or an, a kind of part of something that shouldn't be its own individuality anymore. It should right. be part of the bigger. Yeah.
3: Exactly. Like yeah. yeah,
1: yeah. Oh, hmm, interesting. Yeah, and in in that sense, do you then see, if if we imagine that a lot of different cultures had had these tattoos, but in terms of what you've seen so far with with your research, or in terms of what you've read, are there kind of regional or temporal trends? I imagine there must be. I mean, there wasn't. I guess it's like what it's it's like anything. It's like stone tools; they just appeared everywhere all over the world. As opposed right. to like, they just appeared everywhere, and you know what? What there's sort of a lot of similarities that you see. Do you see a lot of differences in the symbolism? How I don't know. How how does it vary? I suppose over over place and time.
2: I, I think you, you saying about stone tools is exactly right. You know, it's there. There are ceramics. There are stone tools everywhere, yeah. but the specifics of that are going to vary depending on the group in question, you know, their relationship with groups outside of themselves, how isolated or or connected they are to networks, to trade networks, what material culture they have in their local environment to work with. And you know, again, you can sort of envision this in terms of art styles too, right? The art of certain cultures is going to be similar, although not exact, whereas then if you compare that to a culture on the other side of the world, well, you know, maybe they use two straight Mm -hmm. lines to symbolize a path. Right. But, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> right, Or, you know, you know, vertical lines mean rain, but but otherwise there's going to be an entirely different set of symbols attached to it.
1: Yeah. And in terms of then as a, a kind of comparing it with the art, do you find that in those cases where you have access to examples of both kind of other forms of art and the tattoos, do you see similarities in the. Like, are they tattooing themselves with what they're also painting the walls with or, or, or carving into their stone or, or something like that?
2: Not necessarily with the same tools, but definitely <laughs> with the same motifs, right? <laughs> There's a couple of papers that talk about this in terms of, like, scarification in Africa and how the decorations on people's bodies are reflected on pots, on ceramic vessels and the locations are very similar, right? We sort of anthropomorphize ceramic vessels. They have shoulders, they have mouths, they have waists. (laughs) And so the decorations match, tend to match up for where they are on pots and where they are on people's bodies. I heard someone once talk about the idea that things that are, marked onto the earth so petroglyphs cave art things like this uh-huh. that those oftentimes appear then also as tattoos in the culture and the idea that this i can't remember who this was i apologize but the idea that they were floating was sort of this idea of like you know again we anthropomorphize the earth right Is it is the earth mother it's the earth being and so right. yeah, the yeah. things that you are marking onto the earth you are also then marking onto the body of people
1: Amazing. I mean, it could almost be like a little—not uh, CV. What is it? Portfolio, you know, as well. Like, oh, yeah, look, so these are yeah. my designs. It's like the original C right. T studio. You go. That's right. what the caves
3: were. Well, I was <laughs> going you know to say, think... D- D-
1: Danny. A year from now, will hang up right? a flash in yeah. a French cave. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, Danny's designs were being used. Yeah, he's now being inspired again. That would be hilarious if the if the the (laughs) different
2: caves, Lascaux and and everything were actually just just, just sitting there going, "Yeah, well, these are my options. Oh, you want the bison? Yeah, sure. Right. I I mostly do rhinoceroses and." (laughs)
1: Well, that guy does the lions. So you want to go into that <laughs> yeah. like, want to that cave? He'll
2: do the lions for you.
1: <laughs> I mean, I like that idea. i was <laughs> sort of practicing it first on the earth and then <laughs> or oh, vice versa, I suppose. It could have been vice versa. Let me practice on my own body first before I, you know, carve it into mother nature. <laughs> sure. But yeah. But no, that's really interesting. And you've already mentioned it a little bit, but I thought it would be interesting to talk a bit more about who does the tattooing? Because I remember I had you and Maya uh, Sialuk on the Xox show, another podcast that I do, and we chatted about tattooing. And she was talking about, of course, the Inuit tradition uh, of tattooing, which is mainly done by women, for example. And it's sort of one of these things, a bit like you were saying earlier, that you have to you had to kind of earn it from the from the community. It wasn't necessarily something that you kind of selfishly got to do yourself, if that makes sense. Um, but so, and you mentioned earlier that you think it might have been more. The, maybe the sh- the shamans or the the sort of ceremonial figures, I guess, in the community who would have been doing it rather than just everyone. Is there kind of a reason for your your thinking about that, or uh, what what uh, ideas yeah. do you have about that?
2: Yeah. Well, I think that that is is largely based on historical analogy, and mm, okay. that is that is a thing that we see throughout the pre modern world mm. where we have. You know, reliable historical accounts is that the people doing the tattooing held a special status. And that wasn't always, you know, quote unquote, ritual status. Um, you know, they might have been itinerant tattooists traveling from village to village, but it was not just something that was done, you know, by your mom or by anybody, you know, mm-hmm. by your buddies in the basement. <laughs> it, it was it was something that, that, that there was this whole framework around. And, you know, it's, it's really hard to talk about, you know, ritual in the past, right? Because some mm-hmm. of it may be related to cosmology or to how you view the world or how you see spirits, but some of it may be just related to health concerns. Hmm. You know, tattooing involves the the piercing of the skin, the letting of blood. It's it is a process in which you are open to infection, right? This is a high risk sort of behavior. And so I think that part of why it tends to be done by specialists is because these are people who are versed in the taboos and the mm-hmm. traditions. And you know, Some of those taboos may be purely social, right? You don't eat this animal while you're giving the tattoos, but others of them about you know, what happens afterwards and how the tattoos are treated and you know, this kind of thing uh, relate to, to health and to healing and to these ideas of, of helping a person get through this process.
1: Oh, yeah. Which, uh, yeah, relates to a lot of other, I guess, kind of folklore and, and things in different parts of the world and in different time periods as well, right? Is that kind of a lot of the superstitions and all of the, the kind of myths and legends and everything are actually, indeed, just related to be like, oh, yes, and after you have done this, you have to drink the water of a moonbeam right. like three litres every day. You know? <laughs> because it is sort of like, well, yeah, you need to hydrate, you know, <laughs> basically. And uh, so I suppose, well, Yeah, yeah and, and,
2: and, and in my mind, too, this is why... I think that a lot of tattooing traditions historically are connected to rites of passage. You know, if you were just kind of, kind of wave your hand across the globe, many, 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 maybe most traditions are related to ideas like coming of age or becoming an adult, or yeah. you know, transitioning from the uninitiated to the initiated. Right? It's this is sort of it's this liminal process where you come out the other side, and you've got marks on your body that show the world that you are now this other thing
1: yeah
2: and And i guess remind
1: yourself as well that you are right Right.
2: yeah (laughs) and that may be that you're an adult right it can be simple as like oh they're an adult or it may be oh they're a you know a marked warrior they you know they Mm -hmm. have access to these other things whatever but you know these rites of passage which again you know, there's a lot of a lot of issues surrounding those sorts of events that, you know, they're supposed to be painful, they're supposed to be difficult, but you're also supposed to live through them. And so <laughs> the, the people the people that are administering them are, you know, are healers, are, you know, wise women, wise people that are familiar with these processes and can can sort of help usher you through it.
1: Oh, no, very reasonable, I would say. Yeah, Yeah, (laughs) sounds good to me. You've convinced me. (laughs) So we're going to take another quick break now so that those listening can have an opportunity to top up their tea, but we will be back soon. Welcome back, everyone. Hopefully the teacups are now a little bit fuller again. Make sure to, you know, make sure to cool down a bit. Don't uh, scold yourself. So Aaron, we did already introduce you in the first section of this episode, and we talked a little bit about kind of how you got into this topic, but maybe we can go into a bit more detail. So, I mean, you've mentioned a couple of different collaborators that you work with, but how big is the kind of archaeological tattoo community, I guess?
2: It is. It is still pretty niche. <laughs> it yeah. Is, yeah. You know, there's there's a core group of us that have been working on these questions for, you know, the past decade and, and some people for much longer than that. And, you know, we, we all know each other. It, may, it makes it very hard to do anonymous peer review. Because <laughs> <laughs> you're like, oh, that's right. That's obviously Matt's paper. Yes. <laughs> so there are. A very small number of people that are working full time professionally in this. And you know, we, I get I get calls constantly or inquiries from students and they want they say, you know, how, how can I go into tattoo archaeology? And I'm like, well, you know, honestly, you can't, you know, like the, I have the freedom to do tattoo archaeology because it is completely independent mm-hmm. because it's not part of my job. It doesn't have requirements on it. And so, you know, if someone wants to study this thing, the, the best advice I can give them is, you know, you need to pick a type of object or type of art and a region, and then mm. go into it through that route because right. modern academia doesn't just doesn't support the idea of like, I'm going to be a generalist. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> <Yep>. <laughs> no, 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 <laughs> no, no, no. Bone tools from this one site in this one place. <laughs> <Yep>. <laughs> yeah. Yeah.
1: <laughs> I would say I have a lot of people ask me because I, well, I went the other route, I guess I specialized in a method, which it's similar like it's a very specific microwave analysis a very specific method right and it's very specific materials that i look at as well but then it does allow me to look at Different regions, which is quite nice. So people are always, archaeologists are indeed always confused when they're like, "But, but, what's your cultural specialism?" And I'm going, "I, I don't really have one. I just, I just <laughs> right. sort of look at tools from yeah. different uh, things." But indeed, I'm still specialized in a method which yeah, well, fits.
2: fits. <laughs> and that's the thing, right? I mean, it, it's a, it's how it's how the academy is built. I mean, you can be an an archaeologist of households, but <laughs> but when you actually then cut through that, you're going to have looked at, you're going to have spent years knowing way too much about the households of this one particular yeah. region during this one particular period. And, you know, there's information that translates when you start looking at the bigger picture, but you can't just go into it broadly. And so that, I think, is where I've been really, really fortunate is to sort of be able to do that independently.
1: Ah. Which in which case, in case people are listening in and, you know, are thinking, no, but that sounds good. I want to do that. Do you have any kind of suggestions for maybe gaps in, in the current research in terms of specific tools, in terms of specific regions or things that maybe someone might be able to pick for a dissertation topic? Or
2: something like that, <laughs> right? Well, I mean, there's, there's, it's still, there is still a lot of work waiting to be done. <laughs> I think the, the problem for. When you start talking about dissertations, is can you make a dissertation out of it? Right. And yeah. so, you know, there are a lot of, you know, I've run across a lot of people who, for, you know, undergraduate theses or undergraduate uh, sort of summative papers, are doing things like, you know, tattooing in Egypt. And, you know, and that's great. That's, again, this sort of broad spectrum, you know, broad look at, behavior within right. a region but but once they get to graduate school if they want to pursue that specifically you know how many t- how many tools might there actually be mm-hmm. you know how many collections can you actually
3: get access
2: to you know these are the sorts of questions that are going to sort of haunt you if you're trying to make All the a
3: specific
1: study.
2: Yeah,
1: I know I know that feeling as well. I had a similar similar experience where I was going, Yeah the Scottish Carpenter malls, I'm gonna look at them and then Alison Sheridan, the lovely curator at the National Museum of Scotland, basically sort of said to me, But how many years do you have? Like right. me, how many lifetimes do you have to look at this topic? It's like,
2: oh yeah. Yeah. Scary. And you know that's what that's what we're then sort of see, seeing is that your new voices in this in this niche field are getting into it as related to their broader research so they're they're finding things while they are working on other questions and i think but you know i think that's that's really the important thing and that is sort of the my goal having gotten into this was sort of to lift this veil a little bit and be like well you know again why weren't people doing it in the past well how can we change it well one of the ways we can change it is by having people look for it
1: Mm, yeah. And in terms of that kind of idea that, you know, it's becoming a little bit more of a bigger topic. I mean, how is the study of, of tattoos or body modification in general or other, other related topics or themes? is that sort of becoming less of a I don't want to say taboo subject because I, I wouldn't say it was necessarily taboo but like more of a popular subject or more respected I guess as a subject in, in the academic archaeological community
2: I think so you know I mean well so you know my, my anecdote that I tell right is that when I first got into this you know over a decade ago now I I had reached out to one of the you know very sort of senior scholars on southeastern archaeology southeastern United States archaeology and said well, you know I want to look at this with tattoos and, and he kind of like he harumphed at at me and said something like, "You know, there are more graduate students with tattoos of ancient art than there were tattooed people in the ancient world."
1: <laughs>
2: yeah. and, and 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 that that, by the way, is example one for why we're not finding it.
1: Yes. Yeah. There you go. Because it's assumed that they were right. There. Right. Yeah, because yeah, there's
2: yeah. there's an assumption that it's just not there, or that it's you know whatever. It's right. Tattooing is for criminals and prostitutes and blah 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 blah. Yeah so there's you know there's definitely a bias at work there and, and you know anecdotally the people that seem to be really interested in this are the younger generation or people that are even younger than me you know, I'm—I somehow have crossed that line where I'm never—I'm not part of that generation anymore of <laughs> scholars. which, which kind of stinks, old, But now. yeah, 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 so yeah. I'm going. Wait, what? Yep. You? How old? I thought you were twenty. Right. <laughs> no, 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 no. pdd <laughs> What? Uh, yeah. yeah. And you know, as far as reception-wise, I mean, you know, when I give papers at conferences, I definitely, from time to time, feel this whole like, oh, here's Aaron talking about tattooing again. <laughs> <laughs> you know, but, but also like the hell with you, right? Like I, you know, yeah. I'm actually publishing on this. What are you doing?
1: <laughs> yeah, exactly. Exactly. It's peer reviewed. It's, you know, it's valid research. It's, yeah. and yeah, it sounds like there's some exciting things coming uh, about as well. So, so you mentioned that, you know, oh, there's more graduate students with tattoos than, than mm-hmm. ancient tattoos. Do you think that, In order to kind of, and like you say, you've already said that, you know, you don't necessarily approach it from the topic of I'm studying tattoos, you approach it from different ways. But would you say that in order to understand, I guess, the kind of older methods and techniques and and experiences around tattooing, you have to either have tattoos yourself or have tattooed yourself? Or do you think that someone with no tattoos could also come in and do it.
2: <laughs> well, I mean if 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 we can't study it by doing it, then then anthropology is out the window. Right? <laughs> like like if we have if we have to be a part of the culture to understand it, then then we might as well just give up. Yeah, <laughs> you know, that is that's that is what anthropology does, right? We're outside observers, we should be able to make this happen. But but you know, in practice not having that bias certainly certainly helps. And I think that was I think looking back that is a big Change from the previous generation to my generation of scholars was not necessarily having been tattooed, but being in a generation where tattooing was more commonplace. Mm -hmm. And so being able to look at, you know, look more sort of I don't know, open, be more open and looking at these ideas and considering yeah. the past and and getting, you know, there, there was a lot of scholarship on tattoos in the anthropological community in the, in the, you know, the 1990s, but so much of it was, you know, modern primitives, this, and, you know, mm. social rejects that, and, you know, <laughs> you know like all these and you're kinds of things. Going,
1: Hello. <laughs> oh, right. <laughs> <laughs> right, right. With my, my <laughs> hieroglyph on my arm.
2: <laughs> yeah, no, I mean, you know, it's all the sociological studies about how, you know, the t- if you have tattoos then you're going to do drugs and die in a fire, right? Like there's a, there's a high right. statistical correlation there, <laughs> you know, depending on who you talk to. But, but, uh, yeah. but I think, you know, getting past those ideas was really important. Mm. So I don't think you you yourself have to be tattooed, but I, I think you need to be open to these ideas. And I also think that people just need to do their reading. You know, I mean, mm. that's the biggest thing when you look back at like the 18th and 19th and even early 20th centuries with people talking about or looking at tattoos in the past is they're just very limited in their ideas of how these how the process was done what the right. techniques were what the tools were they they want everything to look like samoa Right. That right. was that was, quote, unquote, ancient tattooing as they knew it. And so they wanted everything to, to be hand tapped. Mm-hmm. And, you know, they wanted it to be done for reasons. You know, there's those, you know, those great accounts of the uh, Emunet and the, the women from Deir al-Bahari, I believe it is, in Thebes okay. um, that were they're found in the 1900s, you know high status women in the tomb in the complex funerary complex of a pharaoh and are are found to be tattooed and this is around the turn of the century i think and you know the first discussion of these women is that well clearly they were concubines <laughs> because they were tattooed they right. were in service to the pharaoh mm-hmm. and yeah, yeah right and so yes so, so being able to step away from those things is really really important to understanding yes. it
1: yes which I mean that's hopefully hopefully if you've gotten that far in archaeology or anthropology degree I would hope that you already have learned a little bit about removing yourself from the bias of, of modern life anyway but but indeed so sort of.
2: yeah although again the generation matters yeah you know people mm-hmm. uh, people 40 years ago were learning a much different vision of you know the past than we learn today
1: yeah yeah but but it's good to hear that it's getting a bit more a bit more open and a bit more accepted a bit more generally kind of talked about I suppose as well if you're yeah. I imagine you get a lot of people coming to you and saying oh I had this idea or
2: or something yeah I mean I hope so right I mean I hope I'm not just shouting into the void here <laughs> increasingly again this is this is where i I'm really privileged to be able to do this as independent research is increasingly I've sort of moving away from that academic discourse and instead trying to talk more to you know the tattoo community mm. to 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 people who actually do this as their profession. Because you know, tattooists are really interested in the history of their discipline, of their practice. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And very few of them have access to journals that are behind paywalls. Right. And so I think it's you know it's really maybe even more important than sharing it with the academy is is sharing what we know with people that are actually doing this and living this today.
1: Yeah. No. I couldn't I could not agree more <laughs> I am very very much a pro of that one. And you you mentioned the sort of that the you're doing it obviously as independent research. And so obviously this this isn't your day job, shall we say. It's sort of the, the extra work that you do when, when you have the time and funding, I presume. How do you manage to balance that kind of doing independent research with actually having
2: a daily job? Poorly. Yeah. <laughs> if, you know, I, I think, uh, so, you know, I think it kind of works like an ADHD thing with me, right? Like, it's, you know, where like, I get ideas in my head and they kind of just percolate there. And there's almost kind of a narrative that's running, you know, kind of running in the background on a low Ooh. hum. And, you know, things will sit back there for a while. And then, you know, I'll even, I'll even find myself like writing when I'm asleep where, you know, I'll wake up <sighs> and be like, oh, this is what that section of the paper should look like. <sighs> and, and then, so, you know, if I can find the time to then bang that out, Then it's great. You know, the reality of it is is that is that my wife is very forgiving and (laughs) (laughs) and, and supports me on this. Same.
1: (laughs) (laughs) Everyone always says, "How do
2: you manage to do all your different things?" I'm like, "Because my husband is awesome." (laughs) Right? Because I because I have a great support network. That is the answer. Yeah.
1: Yeah, yeah. Which no, I think that that's no. But I can imagine there's there's so many people I know who who have you know their projects and they're so passionate about it and they're so interested in it, but they just can't. Get the funding, or they just can't actually get an academic position. So they go into a different job, and then just don't have the time or the or the energy to to do it. So I'm always curious to hear people who are managing to to balance it and to combine it,
2: how uh, how it works or doesn't work. <laughs> What's well, I think it's it's become my hobby, you know, and that's mm-hmm. that is how I view it, and that's how then you know when I'm doing like you know these unfunded research trips to Germany to look at mummies in a museum, you know, like. <laughs> you know i don't get reimbursement for this this is mm. this is done on vacation time there is no university funding it's it's out of pocket but it is it is my hobby that's what i spend money on you know some wow. people spend money on you know miniatures for wargaming some Anything. people spend them on <laughs> yeah, yeah,
3: yeah, right.
2: <laughs> oh, yeah, okay. bottles of whiskey it. some people spend them on tattooed mummies it's just it's yeah. what you're into <laughs> yeah
1: I can just imagine
2: your wife going oh,
1: oh where are we going on the holiday this year oh well we're going to this oh, where are the mummy <laughs> like, what My mummies no darling we're definitely going on holiday this time no, 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 maybe have a day or two we, uh, <laughs> we, we, I,
2: those are days where I peel off and uh, we, we do the, th- the things that we are separately interested in nice. yeah. Yeah. Yeah.
1: that works that works she can go and look at her I don't know her viking horned uh, <laughs> <the> <laughs> helmets or something her <laughs> <Your> hobby <laughs> <laughs> I think that it sounds like a, an excellent uh, way to way to have a hobby and a really nice hobby in, in that respect. And in terms of kind of, I mean, we've already touched a little bit of, on the different kind of the, the not approach, the how it, how it is viewed and all of that kind of thing. But are there any kind of other issues, or are there any other what you would see it as, as advantages of, of kind of this more of a niche topic uh, within kind of academic research?
2: Well, I mean, I guess the big advantage is that it doesn't seem like the well will ever run dry. Right. Um, you know, I mean, I, I really thought, you know, in 2013, my, my first book, Drawing with Great Needles, which is about tattooing in ancient Eastern North America, came out as an edited volume. But, you know, at that time, I was kind of like, well, I've done that. Yeah. and And then stuff just kept coming up. Mm-hmm. And so I think that's, you know. Just having continued to try to keep a curious mind has done that. Mm -hmm. And, yeah, there's definitely this kind of outsider status that in some ways benefits you Mm -hmm. where, you know, on one hand, I don't have a Ph.D. I don't have a university affiliation. On the other hand, I'm just some guy that's going to keep politely asking until they let me do the thing I want to (laughs) do.
1: Well, and I would say, I mean, you were very (laughs) modest at the start, but I would say, indeed, you have made a name for yourself now as – the tattoo guy you know, who, oh i appreciate that <laughs> bit, which you know so it's, it's working you're asking enough questions <laughs> but uh, and on that note do you have any Kind of exciting plans or projects that are coming up. I believe this episode will be released end of February or mid mid to end of February. Oh, uh, uh,
2: yeah. Well, if there's anything so, you're allowed to talk about by that point, right? So, <laughs> so by the time this comes out, hopefully, we, Danny, and some others, and I will have a article in the European Journal of Archaeology about um, everyone's favorite tattooed Iceman. <gasps> oh, so hopefully that will be out in print.
1: Okay, in which case I'll share it in the show notes. So
2: <laughs> that's right. Check the that, show notes, and then you'll be able to. See if it came to fruition. Or not. No, I mean, I'm excited about that one. That's that's one of those things that sort of you know ran around my head starting back during the pandemic, and eventually mm-hmm. just got the right team of people together to work on it. And so we're we're reassessing the sort of conventional wisdom as to how his tattoos may have been created.
1: Oh, exciting.
2: Yeah. Yeah. Oh. yeah. Oh. So, so so that's that's coming out, and there's there's another paper too that Danny and I are both working on related to similar topics to this idea. Coming out of our experimental archaeological study, of you know, can we look at preserved tattoos and talk about how they were actually made, yeah. and sort of take the take the guesswork out of that process, make informed hypotheses.
3: Yeah.
2: The Oxford Handbook on the Archaeology of Body Modification. <gasps> Will be coming out <gasps> is is coming out already. Um, it's okay. sort of coming out online as chapters are finished, but it's going to be in print late next year, and oh. that's that's going to be a huge book that will have everything from like you know genital mutilation to Andean oh. tattooing. In it. So <laughs>
1: oh, wow, amazing! Oh, very cool. Yeah. That's, uh, joining the list of handbooks.
2: <laughs> yes, yeah, and I, and so for various colleagues and I have a couple of chapters in that, and um, it'll be good, be good for those to see the light of day. Day too, yeah.
1: Perfect, okay, well I'll make sure to share them as well uh, in the, so yes, if uh, anyone's interested do, do keep checking uh, the things any other final, final chance for any other plugs or I don't know, declarations of, of, of passion for tattoos. or. Right.
2: <laughs> no, I guess not. Um, follow me on the Instagram. Yes. <laughs> no, Which but, is also but, in the show. Right. Great. Yeah, But seriously, like this is, you know, one of the big fulfillments and enjoyments I get out of doing this research is talking with people about it. And, and sharing the information. And that's sort of why that Instagram account was created. And, you know, reach out, ask me questions. You know, folks, folks should feel free anytime. There are no stupid questions. You know, we're all learning together. So, yeah, reach out anytime.
1: Perfect. Right. Well, thank you so much for coming to chat to me today. I very much appreciate it. That marks the end of our tea break. It sounds like you've got a lot to get on with. You've got a whole you know, topic to, <laughs> to, to, to do. Um, thank you very much for joining me and chatting to me about tattoos today.
2: Thank you so much for having me. I really appreciate your time.
1: Uh, and if anyone else indeed wants to find out more about Aaron's work, history of tattoos, anything else we've talked about today, do check the show notes and there'll be Aaron's contact information there as well. So you can start bombarding him with all your questions <laughs> about tattooing. And do not forget that for our APN members, there's also a special bonus episode coming out next week with Aaron and Danny together, who was the professional tattoo artist and guest from my last month's episode to talk more about one of their recent collaborative projects. Hope that you enjoyed our journey today. If you want to help support this show and all of the other amazing series that form the Archaeology Podcast Network, you can become a member. You get access to extra bonus content, such as this special bonus episode. You also get exclusive early access to ad-free episodes. And you also just help us to create even more amazing content. For more information, check out the homepage at archaeologypodcastnetwork.com. See you next month. I hope that you enjoyed our journey today. If you did, make sure to like, follow, subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. And I'll see you next month for another episode of Tea Break Time Travel.
3: This episode was produced by Chris Webster from his RV traveling the United States, Tristan Boyle in Scotland.